Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the chance to study and grow. And we pray that as we uh, work through the life of Christ, you would teach us how more to be like him and walk with him and understand what he's about so we can share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do a little walk through the life of Christ, so if you would stand up with me. Let's start in Bethlehem with the birth. Ready? Bethlehem, birth, and Jesus goes where? Egypt, we call it the flight, home to Nazareth. He becomes a carpenter until about 30. He comes down into the Jordan River. He's what? Out into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. Then three firsts. Perea, first followers. Cana, first miracle. Jerusalem, first cleansing, second birth. Then up through Sychar, he meets the woman at the well. Back home to Nazareth, he has a great rejection. So he moves to Capernaum. He begins to demonstrate his authority. We call that a spat. We have two S's, selection of the twelve, sermon on the mount, two P's, power from Satan, and then the parables start. Two A's, a storm stilled and a crowd filled. Two T's, testimony of Peter, transfiguration. As you let your hands go down your body, we're going to go right down through Samaria. This time we saw a couple of sessions ago we had another rejection. Back down to Jerusalem twice we saw last week, and again just in our last session we have stones flew, and so Jesus withdrew. Now we're going to see in our first paragraph of this session he withdraws to Perea. Perea is outside of the political jurisdiction of the Jewish leadership. And in Perea, he's going to look to his disciples and he's going to say, look, if you want to follow me, you better begin counting the cost. Okay? And then he's going to make one last trip all over everywhere and tell us three parables. We're going to end up there tonight seeking the lost. Okay? So we're going to say Perea, counting the cost, seeking the lost. The hardest part of the life of Christ okay, is to really get from the testimony of Peter out here to counting the cost, seeking the loss. Do it with me. Here we go. Testimony of Peter, transfiguration, Samaria, rejection, Jerusalem, stones flew, Jesus withdrew. Where? Perea, counting the cost, seeking the loss. Good. Have a seat. You're doing great. If you can remember that, you will get through the whole life of Christ. And you will have it in a handout form with the appropriate references all the way through. Jesus, his finished at the Feast of Dedication. And in paragraph 120, we're going to see in verse 40 of John 10, he went back across the Jordan River, again to the place where John had been baptizing. And we know across the Jordan River is Perea, and he goes to Perea because the Jewish leadership cannot touch him in Perea. They're not going to go over there where those dirty Gentiles live, okay? Many came to him and began to say, John performed no miraculous sign, but everything John said about this man was true, which I love because you remember people were saying, oh, John's screwed this up. John's not been a failure. Everything he predicted about Jesus is coming true, and many believed in Jesus there. These are individual Jews who come on the basis of personal need because they possess personal faith. They're not coming as a nation, but they're coming as individuals with personal need and personal faith. Now in verse 22, next, next paragraph, 121, Luke 13, 22. Luke 13, 22. Then Jesus traveled throughout the towns and villages, teaching and making his way toward Jerusalem. My guess is that he's traveling all throughout this land, visiting the 35 cities that we talked about a couple of sessions ago that were prepared by the 70. You remember the 70 were sent out two by two to prepare for Jesus. Now he's making one last ditch 
trip through the countryside. He's only got weeks to live. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? Logical question. Because the Jewish approach was that everybody got saved. All you had to do to get saved was be Jewish. Okay? In the Talmud, there's actually a verse that says, Abraham sits at the gates of Sheol just in case someone is mistakenly sent to hell. And then Jesus addresses something that in our culture is not spoken of well. Okay? He said to them, every effort to enter through the narrow door, ex- I'm sorry, exert every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. The result is that the door to salvation is blocked right now by the Pharisees. And that's the problem that the Jewish people have. So so for the Jewish people to respond to Jesus, they've got to get through the blockage in the door. You with me? And so Jesus opens up the whole discussion about the narrow question. Isn't it too narrow to say there's only one way in? Verse 35. I'm sorry, 25. 13, 25. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and start to knock on the door and beg him, Lord, let us in. But he will answer, I don't know where you came from. See, after the, after the kingdom gets started, after the feast begins, you try it again and it's too late. You've got to decide now, is it my way or is it the Pharisees' way? Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I don't know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves thrown out. See, the Jews are in trouble because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the Jewish believers from all time will be in the kingdom and the Pharisees and their followers are going to be kept out of the banquet. And then he says, verse 29, then people will come from the east and west and from the north and south and take their places at the banquet table in the kingdom of God. Now who are the people from the east and the west and the north and the south? It's us, it's the Gentiles, we're the goyim. And because the Jewish nation rejects Jesus, the kingdom goes into the mystery form. We've talked about this during the parables. And during the mystery form of the kingdom, anybody can come to Jesus based on personal need and personal faith. It's no longer are you a descendant of Abraham. The question is what do you do with Christ and his death and burial and resurrection? And those from the east and the west and the north and the south are going to get in. Just making you Jewish, just being Jewish is not good enough anymore. The result, verse 30, and this is going to be a motif in this section. Indeed, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. See, who are the last and are going to be first? They're the Gentiles. Who are the first and going to be last? The Pharisees and their followers. Verse 31, at that very hour, literally, at that very time, some Pharisees came up and said to Jesus, get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. We've talked about Herod before, but Herod Antipas has authority in the north where Jesus grew up in Galilee, but he also has authority down here in Perea. He's one of Herod the Great's four sons that is occupying and ruling over the land. And so you say, oh, those Pharisees are good guys. They're just trying to get Jesus safe, right? No, 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 no. The Pharisees are not trying to get Jesus safe. What are they trying to do? Get him to move back out of Perea and into Judea so they have authority over him. And so verse... 32, Jesus said, go tell that fox, look, I'm casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will complete my work. Again, I think that's a reference to the resurrection. 
Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the next day because it is impossible that a prophet should be killed outside Jerusalem. Because I'm not going to die at the hand of Herod here in Perea. Ultimately, I'm going to die where the prophets die, Jerusalem. And then he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. And again, we'll get to this in in another paragraph next session, but Jesus is not happy that Israel is going to be judged. He's grieving here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you. I've offered this to you, but you were not willing. You would have none of it. And therefore, verse 35, your house is forsaken. The word there is desolate. And in 70 A.D., the Pharisaic system of, the, of, of Judaism is, is destroyed forever. The temple is destroyed by Titus Vespasian, the Roman general, and Pharisaism is done. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He's saying here, I'm going to come back, but to Israel I'm not going to come back until you beg me to. And that's going to be before the second coming. And again, it's my understanding that prior to the second coming, there'll be a great revival among the Jews as a nation, and they will cry out for his return. The word Hosanna means, Lord, save us. And these Jewish uh, people who at the end times are around will be begging for the coming of their Messiah, who now they understand to be Jesus. So there's a hope for Israel. There's a future for Israel. But right now they're in a lot of trouble because they're rejecting the king in their midst. Now, Jesus goes into a Pharisee's house. What should, what should go up in your, in your mind right now? Red flag, red flag, red flag. He's invited for dinner. Oh, isn't that nice? Now, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a leader of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. Why? They're going to trap him. So there, right in front of him, was a man suffering from dropsy. Do you know what dropsy is? We looked it up today. It's renal failure. It's... It has to do, it's like a palsy, there's an edema, there's a swelling, it's not a good thing. And Jesus asked the experts in religious law and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Answer, it is. And so in verses 1 to 6, he's going to say, look, true Sabbath rest includes healing. That's point one of this paragraph. Verses 1 to 6, point one, true Sabbath rest includes healing. They remained silent, verse 4. Jesus took a hold of the man, healed him, and sent him away. Then he said to him, Which of you, if you have a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? But they couldn't reply to this. See, Jesus violates the Mishnaic law. He doesn't violate the Old Testament law. They don't have an answer for this because they know that even they are allowed to take their ox out of the ditch or their son out of the well on the Sabbath. Second, Beginning in verse 7 through verse 11, he tells a parable about humility. When Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. Again, the Pharisees had a strict system, and the Jews did have a strict way of, of dining. And the host would sit in the middle of the table, and then the guest of honor would be at his right hand, and the second most important person would be at his left and then right, and then left, and then right, and then left. Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus' disciples are going to fight over who gets the good seat. Okay, they want to sit at the right and the left. He said to them, verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. 
because a person more distinguished than you may have been invited by your host. In other words, don't raise yourself. Let other people raise you up. So the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your place. Then, ashamed, you'll begin to move to the least important place. See, the way it worked was, if you were sitting here next to the host and somebody came in deserved that seat, you didn't get to just shuffle down one seat. You had to go all the way to the end of the table. You had to go to the kids' table. It was a very humiliating experience. And so Jesus says, don't do that. Then ashamed you'll begin to move to the least important place, but when you are invited, go and take the least important place so that when your host approaches, he will say to you, friend, move up here to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who share the meal with you. So the parable is involving the importance of humility. And then verses 12 to 14, here's how you treat people. Respect people. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The ones who exalt themselves are the Pharisees. The ones who humble themselves should be the disciples. Here's verse 12, respecter of persons. He said to the man who had invited him, when you host a dinner or banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors so you can be invited by them in return. That's what the Pharisees did. It's what I do. Nothing inherently wrong with inviting people to dinner that will invite you back. But if that's the reason that you're doing it, you're wrong here. And make sure you include the poor. They didn't like the poor. They didn't like the downtrodden. Because in their theology, he whom the Lord loves, he makes rich. That's a quote from the Talmud. And therefore, if you were poor or stricken, or ill, or crippled, or infirm, or unclean, God must not love you. So Jesus is saying, hey, let's not deal with people the way the Pharisees do. Verse 13, when you, uh, when you host an elaborate meal, invite the poor. These are the common people, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be re repaid at the resurrection. The point, true hospitality should be toward those who cannot repay you. And then verses 15 to 24, point number four, is the rejection of the invitation by the Jewish leaders. When one of those at the meal with Jesus heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many guests. And, I, and the man, I've I got to think, is God. The banquet is the kingdom, the kingdom feast. And the kingdom is offered to many guests. Verse 17, at the time for the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who had been invited, come because everything is now ready. Now his slave could refer to Jesus. His slave could refer to the prophets. His slave could refer to John the Baptist. Hey, the kingdom is about here. But, verse 18, one after another, they all began to make excuses. The first one said, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. Now what's the problem with this? The problem is, when does the banquet always start? At night. You can't see the field at night. Nor do you inspect your oxen at night. That's the next guy. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to examine them. Please excuse me. See, don't let business tie you down. Another said, I just got married and I cannot come. Now, jot here, one of my favorite Old Testament verses is Deuteronomy 24.5. When you do get married as a Hebrew, you get to take a whole year off and make your wife happy. And I don't think that means telling her jokes for the year. I think it's a wonderful idea. But you can go to the banquet. You can take her along. Another, so the slave came back, verse 20, uh, 21. 
reported this to his master. Then the master of the household was furious and said to his slave, Go out quickly to the streets and alleys of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. I think that's, that's the Jews who are not followers of the Pharisees, the common people, the people with whom the Pharisees would not participate, would not engage, would not associate. And then verse 22, the slave said, Sir, what you instructed has been done, and there is still room. And so that's the good news for you and me. So the master said to his slave, Go out into the highways and country roads and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. And who lives out on the highways and the country roads? Us Gentiles, the goyim. For I tell you, not one of those individuals who are invited will taste my banquet. They are the evil generation who has rejected me and committed that which is not pardonable. Paragraph 123, Luke 14. Now large crowds were accompanying Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, in the scripture, hate has to do with choice. It's not an emotion, oh, I don't hate my dad. No, I'm choosing Jesus over my family. If you want to be a follower of Christ, there are three lessons here. Be willing to leave everything and everybody else behind. Second, verse 27, bear Christ's cross. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then third, count the cost. Which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't sit down first and compute the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish the tower, all will see and begin, begin to make fun of him. Then they will say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. See, coming to Jesus is free. I deal with that from time to time. I get people say, wait, it's, all I've got to do is believe this? That's too easy. Well, in one sense, coming to Jesus is easy in the sense that I have to realize that's the only way to get to heaven. I can't earn my way there. I can't be reincarnated or obey enough laws or jump high enough on anybody's theological standard to get to where heaven is. Jesus said, hey, I'm coming down to you, and if you embrace me and what I've done on the cross, I will forgive you, and I will promise you heaven. But following Jesus costs Coming to Jesus is simple, but following Jesus is a little complicated. And by the way, coming to Jesus is not really easy because I've got to give up something. You know, I've got to give up my pride that says, I can do this. God deserves me. God doesn't want me. God's, God loves me and says, I'll send Jesus so that you can make it. Now here's one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. Jesus is going to tell us what God is like what God is like. That's why Jesus comes. He comes to show us what God is like. And so in the Luke 15 passage, we have three parables illustrating God's instruction toward sinners, paragraph 124. Luke 15, 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and experts in the law were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So what do we got going on here? We got two groups of people. We got tax gatherers and sinners, okay? Then we got scribes and Pharisees. Two groups, tax gatherers and sinners, scribes and Pharisees. With me? Jesus is moving toward what group? 
tax gatherers and sinners. And that's really the word welcome means he's moving toward them. That's the Greek word. So he tells them this parable. Which of you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go look for the one until he finds it? Then when he has found it, he places it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Returning home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, telling them, Rejoice with me because I found my sheep that was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who have no need to repent. In the Talmud, there's a verse that says this. There is joy in the presence of God when those who provoke him perish from the earth. Think about that. That was the Pharisees' view of God and his love. There is joy in the presence of God when those who provoke him perish from the earth. And see, Jesus flies right in the face of that with his parable. Okay? Who is the shepherd? God. Okay. The two groups, we got the 99 sheep and the one sheep. Who's the one sheep represent? Tax gatherers and sinners. Who's the 99 sheep represent? Pharisees and the scribes. What is God like? God is like a shepherd with one lost sheep. And how long does he look for the sheep until he finds it? Some of you know my son, Matty, who's my baseball player. When he was three, he came home from Sunday school at a Methodist church in Lake Wales. And I said, what did you learn today? He said, we learned about the lost lamb. He had trouble with his R's and his L's. I said, what did you learn? And he had these great, exciting, explosive eyes. He said, well, there was a shepherd, and he had a widow wham, and the wham went out for a walk, and he got lost. I said, what happened next? He said, well, the shepherd went out to find him. And he whooked, and he whooked, and he whooked, and he whooked. And he whooked in Goldilocks' house, and he wasn't there. And then he went to the three bells' house, and he wasn't there. And then he whooked in a twee, and there he was. Now, his details weren't exactly right, but his heart was right. How long does the shepherd look for the one lost sheep until he finds it? And then look, look at the next verse. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders. What? There is joy there. There is personal joy. Listen, when you are involved with people that don't know Jesus and they come to faith, there's personal I don't know anything that gives me more joy than seeing somebody come to Christ. That's what this life is really about. That's the reason God allows us to stay behind here. And then he says to his friends and neighbors, rejoice with me. There's not only personal joy, there's collective joy. And that leads to what kind of joy? There is joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents. Whenever somebody comes to faith in my office, the next thing I'll do is I'll say, who, who do we need to call? Who's been praying for you? It might be a grandma, it might be a spouse, it might be a sibling, it might be a child. Let's let them rejoice at this, because the angels are rejoicing. You know, when you came to Jesus, the angels jumped up and down and had a party. Some of you, they're still partying. What is God like? He is like a shepherd with one lost sheep. He's also like a woman with one lost coin. Luke 15, verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search thoroughly until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. What is God like? He's like a woman who's lost one of her ten coins. Probably the ten coins are her dowry. As the father of males, I believe the dowry is a wonderful tradition and ought to be reinstated. Somebody got it. 
none of this bride price stuff. And when she finds it, she's now complete as a woman. And she's excited the way God is excited over one lost person who comes to faith. And then unfortunately, this last parable is called the parable of the prodigal son. It is not the parable of the prodigal son. It is the parable of the loving father. Jesus said a man had two sons. Okay, the man is going to be God. He's going to have one son that represents the tax gatherers and sinners. He's going to have another son that represents the scribes and Pharisees. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. And again, under the Jewish tradition, he would get a third. If there were two brothers, older brother gets two-thirds, younger brother gets one-third. I kind of like that. I'm the oldest, oldest son. After a few days, the younger son gathered, all, gathered together all he had, left on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. The Living Bible says, squandered his money on parties and prostitutes. Now, it gets bad, but it goes to worse. Verse 14, after he spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country. He began to be in need, so he went to and worked for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, if you're a nice Jewish boy, the last thing you ever want to do is grow up and be a pig feeder. And he was longing to eat the carob pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have enough food to spare, but here I am dying from hunger. And then he says, I will get up and go to my father and say to him, and I think he begins to practice this speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he's got the speech, he's got the gig ready, he's walking home, and then it says he got up and went to his father Watch, I love this. But while he was still a long way from home, his father, what, saw him. Why? Because his father was waiting. His father was looking every day. And the father's heart went out to him. Why? Because the father loved him. And he ran and hugged his son. In, in, in the Eastern cultures, a man never runs, ever, ever. You don't pick up your robe and run. It's very unacceptable. And he hugged him and literally kissed him on the neck again and again. Isn't that great? Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but, I love the but. He doesn't get to finish the speech, does he? But, the father said to his slaves, hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. The robe is a sign of his birthright. Put a ring on his finger, that's a sign of authority. And sandals on his feet, that's a sign of sonship. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate because this son of mine was dead, is alive again, he is lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. But this was a man with two sons. And God loves that lost son so much that he looks and he looks and he looks until the lost son comes home. But he's got another son. Who's the other son? the scribes and the Pharisees. Now his older son was in the field. What was he doing in the field? Working. What are the Pharisees good at? Working, 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 obeying, 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 obeying. That's them. As he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. 
So he called one of the slaves. He didn't even go to his dad. He called one of the slaves and asked what was happening. The slave replied, your brother has returned and your father has killed the fattened calf because he got back safe and sound. But the older son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out to him. Why? Because he loved both the boys. God loves the Pharisees and the scribes too. And he appealed to him and he answered his father, Look, these many years I have worked like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your commands. You hear the Pharisee in that? Yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, not my brother, when this son of yours came back, who devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you were always with me. Watch this. Son, you are always with me. And everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You Pharisees should rejoice over the tax collectors and sinners that come to God. Instead, you're saying there is joy in the presence of God over those who provoke him perish from the earth. And you are left to write the ending to this parable. And it's really a tragic ending, I think. I read a play one time based on this story where, you know, how does, how does the story end? You know, in my heart, I want that older son to go into the party and join his father and embrace his brother. But in reality, what do the Pharisees and scribes do to the father? They kill him. And in the play I read, it was shocking, but the older son took out a club and he beat, beat his dad to death. And unfortunately, that's how the story plays out in the history that we're in right now. But the offer was there. The offer was there. What is God like? God's like a shepherd with one lost sheep. God's like a woman with one lost coin. And God's like a father with two sons. Loves them both. Wants them to enjoy everything that he has. But the decision is ultimately up to them. Thank you, Father, for these parables and this picture of what you're like and for your Son, our Savior, who so clearly shows us what you're like. And we pray, Father, that you would give us your heart for people that don't know you and there would be personal joy over sharing your love with others. In Jesus' name, amen.